0: Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We're so excited to be launching this show. And as our first guest, we had someone very special on, our own rabbi, Rabbi Joshua Marouf. Rabbi Maruf received his rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Rockaway, New York, his BA with honors in psychology from SUNY Stony Brook, and his master's in educational psychology from the CUNY Graduate Center. He's the Founder and Dean of Yeshivat De De'Aveh HaSkel and is a widely sought-after pulpit rabbi, author, lecturer, educator, and public speaker. Tonight he talks to us about some interesting issues such as, does God cause evil? How to fix Torah education for our youth? And is there a solution to the Aguna crisis? All these and more, we're very excited to introduce Without further ado, Rabbi Joshua Maruf. Hey, everybody, welcome to the first episode of Judaism Demystified. I'm your host, Benji. I'm Ben We're very excited to introduce our first guest, um, the rabbi of our community, who uh, it's bittersweet because he's leaving us, he's moving to Israel, but we're very happy for him. And we enjoyed all the years together. Hopefully, we're going to stay in touch. Um, Rabbi Maruf. say hello.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: Very good, very good. Doing well. So yeah, we, we're going to jump into some topics. Um, just for those who are listening for the first time, um, we might, it might seem to be, you know, like we're going off on tangents, but we really want to cover um, specific topics that would interest Jews who are not necessarily so interested in Judaism right now or have been turned off And we're going to deal with issues that aren't always talked about, you know, behind uh, the yeshiva closed door, so to speak. So um, we're going to start off with a question that actually I feel is something that people believe. And I've heard it spoken about a lot. We've actually had classes about it with you. But I want to know your take on this. Um, Does God cause evil? Does God cause evil?
1: Well, it's obviously, you know, a classic philosophical question. It's not even a, a specifically Jewish question. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's something that uh, philosophers, theologians of uh, every religion have grappled with because of the problem on one hand. I guess a way to think of it is that on one hand, uh, saying that something occurs or exists that isn't caused by God sounds kind of sacrilegious because uh, God is omnipotent and controls everything. And so therefore uh, to state that uh, or suggest that he is not responsible for evil would mean that there's some other force or there's some other uh, other entity that is responsible for it. And maybe that could be understood as uh, undermining the idea of the omnipotence of God. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, to attribute something evil to God also seems inappropriate and uh, wouldn't be a perfection for God to be the cause of evil. So you know, to to say that God is the cause of evil is likewise very problematic and, uh, and, and would trouble, uh, you know, the religious mind. So the obviously some religious traditions resolve this problem by inventing a devil or a source of evil other than God. And the reason for the, the, the impetus for, for creating that kind of an imaginary figure is, be, is to remove the, uh, is to solve this problem basically, to remove evil from God, to say that God doesn't directly cause evil uh, but it, there's another agent, and that other agent is, to a greater or lesser extent, answering, you know, answerable to God, or sort of, you know, created by God, maybe in some traditions, and other in other traditions, in other religions, totally independent of God. But the idea is to uh, is to separate, create a separation between God and evil, uh, in, in order to preserve God's greatness and perfection. I think the solution that Judaism gives to this problem is uh, really the, the most uh, reasonable solution and the most uh, and the smoothest solution of all, which is very simple. Uh, what does to cause something really mean is, is the question. What does it mean to be a cause? We can be causes of, of things in different ways. So when it comes to, uh, if, if, for instance, if you, uh, if you delegate to somebody a certain responsibility, and they failed to fulfill that responsibility, or they botched the mission, uh, who's responsible? Who's who, who caused them to? Who caused the mission to be botched? Who caused the project to fail? Was it the person who delegated the task, or the person who didn't execute the task that they were to? You know, that was delegated to them. So this question is not really particular. We can can reframe the question as a more general question about causality and responsibility and not necessarily a theological question. If God created the universe and within the universe are free agents that have free will and the free agents that have free will make choices that are evil or that contradict the purpose for which the free will was given, uh, is that God causing the evil that emerges from those actions or that results from those actions or not? So in a certain sense, you could say, well, yes, because God empowered or enabled human beings to make the choices uh, that are wicked and to perpetrate evil. But on the other hand, that would be uh, removing agency from the actual uh, from the actual criminals or the actual uh, human beings who, let's say, who are enacting the evil. So Um, so it's a it so it's in a way I think uh, a a matter of semantics that whether we say that God is the cause of evil or not, the the cause of evil uh, is human beings and their bad choices I mean most evil let's leave let's just to be to say 90% of the things that we call evil in the world, I would say are caused by human beings exercising their freedom of choice in a way that contradicts God's will. Now, God enabled them to do that. He, he, he empowered them to do that. He delegated to them the responsibility uh, of using their free choice appropriately. But so we can, in a way we can quote unquote, blame God, you know, for that. But it's not really God being the cause of evil. In fact, there is there are certain, you know, passages in the Talmud that where, where the rabbis say, you know, I could, uh, I could there, there's a very famous one, I could, uh, I could exempt the entire world from judgment because God created the Yitzhara, God created the evil inclination, and it's too powerful. It's too powerful, we can't resist it, and, and, and therefore, it's, it's all God's fault that we, uh, we do bad things, you know, meaning that idea is not totally incorrect. God created the world that allowed for evil to, to occur. But that's not, but so in that sense, yes, he's a cause, but not a cause in the sense of a direct cause, a cause in the same way that someone who delegates a task could be held responsible for the failure of the, of the task.
2: I would, I would think that our viewers might ask um, that that would answer evil caused by humans, but regarding like sicknesses and natural disasters and those type of things, Uh, perhaps the viewers might ask why did God allow for that type of situation to occur
1: right so yeah I when I think of evil and I think of wickedness I usually don't think of acts of nature usually (laughs) think of human human actions so that's why I I focused on that but in so far as you know again the same same dilemmas is, is discussed by so many different philosophers and and so many different theologians, religious thinkers, because it is a great difficulty. Uh, and and if you look at what the Rambam does, what the Rambam really, uh, how he approaches it in, in in his various works, and I think it's really the uh, the core approach of the of classical Judaism, is that uh, is that the universe was created according to certain laws and the laws are as best as possibly could be given the material of the universe. So let's say for example, the laws of genetics. Um, so 95% of the time they work quite beautifully. Once in a while they, uh, they cause, let's say genetic abnormalities or problems that are, really, um, that are really severe. The question is what would the alternative be um, in a lawful universe there are going to be uh, there because it's the same way. I mean, to use an analogy, the same way that human law there could be an excellent law, but every once in a while there's going to be a court case where you scratch your head and you say, "This is ridiculous. Why, why is this the Why is the court ruling like this? Why is the law, you know, why is the law putting this person in jail for this? Or why is the law?" Uh, you know, prohibiting certain things or 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 penalizing certain people—it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but the law is fixed. So the law is fixed because laws and principles are how we best govern. But the law, by definition, if it's going to be an actual law that is uh, that is general and the, and is functional for the 99% of cases in which it is, you know, it reaches its objective successfully, it's also going to have that 1% of cases in which the results are uh, contrary to what we think, what we assume the purpose and the design of the law uh, intended. And so you can, so the laws of nature do cause natural disasters and do cause sicknesses. But number one, they we also have the tools of human intelligence that can help us prevent, mitigate, or even cure uh, some of these ills. So that is a, uh, so in that way, you know, we're making the assumption, we're making a, a very, um, sort of human-centric assumption that the laws of nature should cater to our needs and interests instead of saying well maybe the fact that the that the laws don't cater to our interests is a stimulus for us to have to understand the world better so that we can engage with it and we can develop technologies or develop a better comprehension of how it works and therefore uh, thrive in it more effectively so you know we tend to look at the uh, we tend to look at it as well why is it not conforming to my will, but the fact is that when life goes easily for us, we're not challenged to actually investigate anything. And it's precisely the fact that the universe doesn't always conform to our wishes that inspires us to, uh, uh, to learn more about it. And that's part of, I think, what the, the story of Gan Eden really is, is touching upon. That Adam and Chava, if they had existed for eternity in a perfect uh, idyllic you know, uh, sort of place, with all of their needs catered to and uh, not having to work and not having to experience any kind of pain or frustration or conflict. So then they never would have grown in any way. Uh, it's so part of, on one hand, we can't really look at the laws of the universe. You know, I, I, I don't wanna be a downer, but if you, uh, if you look at the universe and then you compare it to the scale of your life, it's like there are many, many, many zeros after the decimal point of the percentage that your life takes up of the uh, totality <laughs> of the universe so like the idea that there's even a possibility that the laws of the universe are designed to cater to you is absurd and the fact that the laws of nature cater to our needs to the extent that they do is a miracle mm. because we're such a and uh, we're such a tiny i mean saying tiny is an under uh, is like the understatement of all time it's like infinitesimal,
2: infinitesimal, really...
1: right? I mean, you can't even measure to the scale of the universe. And yet these pretty much what we understand based upon the science as we understand it today, uh, from a single act of the emergence of the universe governed by the basic, you know, these fundamental laws of physics, everything emerged from that point. And everything that we see around us is just the result of those laws playing themselves out. And yet we have really, uh, very little to complain about. I'm not saying that, you know, people don't have difficulties in their lives and problems. I'm not, you know, not to minimize the human aspect of, uh, of suffering or the, you know, the, the, the enormity of, of, of difficulties that some people face in their life. I'm saying when you put it in perspective and you think about the fact that this incredibly vast, practically from our perspective, infinite universe has provided a livable, and harmonious environment in which we can live and 95% of people are able to thrive and most of us have a decent life uh, is pretty remarkable. So to focus on the fact that of that once in a while, unfortunately, a small percent of the outcome of that, uh, of those laws is painful for us and sometimes destructive to us and to our interests. I want to m- mention that that's it, it's only relative to our interest because you're not that upset about the storms that are happening on mars right now <laughs> you know you're only you're right or like all the other planets that are you know there are storms happening on the sun constantly and nobody's worried about that so the the natural disasters are disasters because they are disastrous to us so the fact that that one small percent I'm, and again i don't mean to like say or suggest that the suffering of people who are harmed or made sick or who die, God forbid, from, you know, natural disasters or illnesses is not significant. It's, of course, very significant and a human being, is, every human being is a unique creation with, uh, you know, made in God's image. So it's not, so, it's not something to, to, uh, to take lightly. I'm just saying that, the laws of nature that God created, God created a lawful universe so that, or I I shouldn't say, God created a a, a lawful universe such that, that enables us to understand and recognize the creator. If the laws were not fixed and orderly and harmonious, we wouldn't be able to recognize the creator from them and that would make our existence meaningless in a different way.
2: Wow, I never thought
1: about it. So um, there's a guy who wrote a book, there was a, a philosopher. He's a he's a British um, philosopher named that uh, David Conway. I'm not sure if he's still alive. I haven't checked up on him lately. But he wrote a book about uh, about the pursuit of wisdom. And basically, um, you can look it up. i my, the name of the book is slipping my mind at the moment. But he uh, essentially he 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 says that the ultimate purpose of philosophy was initially contemplation of God, you know, and he says, and this is what we have to restore this, you know, this concept to the center of our attention. And that he talks about people like David Hume, who were also continental philosophers, who um, crit- who were more uh, the fathers of the uh, current, more materialistic, more skeptical uh, view of how things work. And one of the things that David Hume complained, complained about a lot was the fact that there's suffering and the fact that God does, God allows, you know, bad things to happen in the world. And one of the arguments that this David Conway made was like, well, why are you assuming that's bad? That's only unpleasant, but actually those laws of the universe are necessary for us to be able to understand that there's an order in creation. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to see it. So why do you assume that God bending the rules every time you're in pain would actually serve a a higher purpose. That's an infantile way of thinking. Now, again, it's easy to say that for us that we don't experience tremendous, tremendous adversity. And I realize there are some people that are suffering a lot. But in general, most people's suffering and most people's hardships, thank God, are not devastating and and life-destroying hardships. And the fact that they feel that somehow God should bend the rules that govern the universe in order to avoid that is placing themselves really on a, on a high pedestal. And that's, and he being like, uh, not, a, not even a Jewish uh, thinker. He he's, uh I don't know what religion he is. He talks about Judaism though. And he talks about religious views, but um, it's a very interesting book. Just, he makes that point there. I remember, and it's an important point to keep in mind.
0: Well, now that you brought up Jewish thinkers, hmm. um, I wanted to talk about what you think of the fact that, Less than 1% of the world population are Jews, and about, I think, 22% of the Nobel Prize winners are Jewish, yet I don't think any of them are religious. So why aren't our most intelligent and um, Brightest. Yeah, our brightest minds. Why aren't they turned on by Judaism? What exactly do you think is turning off the educated?
2: Um, well, it's
1: hard. Yeah, it's that, it's hard to say for sure, and there's probably a lot of um, individual variation. I think there were one or two that were religious, actually, of the Nobel Prize winners. But um, the uh, at least to some extent religious, I, I, I do believe that there were. But uh, but you're right that I'm. The, the question can be looked at from two angles. One question is, why is it that there's an overrepresentation of Jews among Nobel Prize winners? That's that's a whole separate question. And I think that that really comes down to something that um, I'm using as examples of uh, innovative thinkers of, let's say, a century ago now. If we look at, let's say, two thinkers who are considered to be really revolutionary thinkers in their fields and were very, um, you know, were well known to be Jewish and identified strongly as Jewish, even though not religious would be Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud, two thinkers who were very secular, but very Jewish in the sense that they had a strong Jewish identity. And both of them uh, very interestingly saw themselves as, saw their ability to think the way that they did as connected to their Jewishness and actually, had a kind of a jaded view, like would would dismiss almost or 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 label the thinking or the ways of thinking of other uh, of other um, competing theorists as oh well he's a gentile you know he's a goy so he doesn't understand he doesn't understand what we're ta- what we're saying like and these are not religious Jews but they believe that what gave them the independence of thought was the fact the fact that they were on the periphery of society and they were excluded from society and therefore trying to say and think in a way that would fit in with the mainstream had no benefit to them because they were already excluded and on the outs with everyone as Jews. So it actually benefited them to think independent, you know, in other words, it contributed to their ability to think independently that they were um, out, I don't want to say outcasts, but, you know, it wasn't easy for, uh, for Einstein to, to, to be, uh, you know, to find a professorship or to be able to have his theories recognized. And it wasn't only because they were revolutionary. It was also in part because he was a Jew. And the same with Freud that he struggled with the fact that he was a Jew um, in, in terms of his academic career and his ideas being um, appreciated and, and accepted in his time. So they were independent thinkers. In other words, part of what holds people back, even great minds from being independent and innovative thinkers, which are the types of thinkers that are Nobel prize winners, um, is the fear or the desire to be accepted by the mainstream. And one of the things that Jews have is a deep skepticism of any kind of established authority. Um, and that's a, that's a cultural phenomenon that we inherited from our ancestors going all the way back to Abraham Avinu, I believe, You know that, uh, that Jews are very skeptical of authority. Uh, We don't accept things just because somebody said it or just because, you know, we were told to. And that's why almost every government, pretty much every tyrannical government persecuted the Jews because Jews never really believed that the human government was the absolute authority. Even if they weren't religious Jews, they never believed that. They always just took the secular authorities or the you know the uh, the political authorities with a grain of salt and kind of a certain measure of skepticism and kind of a a a a, uh, disinterest they didn't have a genuine reverence for any human authority whether that was because their reverence was for god or that was just because their reverence was for truth but it certainly wasn't for any human authority so that that trait of Jews, the the emphasis on intellectual discovery and on independence of thought is what shaped our culture into an ideal vehicle for great thinking and great thinkers in every discipline, not only in the area of Torah. Now, your question, I didn't really answer your question, but I wanted to put that in perspective first, just to, 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 to examine the positive side of it, to understand why it is that we have so many thinkers and so many intellectuals in Judaism to begin with. And why it is that we have so many people who were innovative uh, and creative, uh, you know, revolutionary thinkers. And I think that that's the reason. It goes back to our culture, starting all the way from Avraham Avinu, who said, "I'm not going to believe in your God and your religion just because you told me to. I'm going to think about it independently. I'm going to doubt everything. I'm going to question everything. And if I'm not accepted, so then I might as well go on my own path because I'm not accepted anyway." So that you know, that might be lessening somewhat the uh, the feeling of uh, exclusion and the. uh, and, and the feeling that uh, Jews cannot be mainstreamed because of their Jewish identity, but I'm not 100% convinced that that's true now either. Um, putting that aside, so why is it now, I can't know for sure the answer to uh, why it is that uh, these intellectuals were not attracted to Judaism. I would suspect that in some cases, they weren't really raised with much, if any Jewish education A limited Jewish education so Jewish education that is just the sort of um, superficial religious training that most children receive is not going to be seen as any object of intellectual inquiry uh, that would engage a person's mind so. It, it, so part of it is that it just wasn't really. I mean, if you go to a typical Hebrew school or anything like that, which most of these uh, most of these thinkers at best maybe went to a an after school program to prepare for their bar mitzvah type of thing. It's not like they really went to any kind of intensive uh, intellectual study of Judaism. So you wouldn't come away with an with the thought that wow, Judaism is deep and it's worthy of exploring and really considering and it has something to offer intellectually. Because the fact is that. Even if you, even if you don't believe in it, even if you're a skeptic, you should be able to see that it has something to offer intellectually. If you were presented it as a, uh, you know, as a discipline of knowledge and thought, so you'd say, okay, I might not be religious and I might not follow it, but I know that it's a, at least I know that it's a chokhmah. I know that it's a type of, of of wisdom. Like at the very least, you would expect someone who was who had an experience, some educational experience of Judaism, to know that. Um, there, there are some stories like that, you know, there's a story of, uh, there's a story that Herman Wouk, who he passed away uh, a, a couple years ago, uh, the author, he was an Orthodox Jew, although, he, you know, he was uh, more better known as a, uh, as an author, and he wrote uh, mostly um, like military novels and things like that, but one of the things that he, he wrote two autobiographical books and um, about his journey in Judaism as a Jew. Very interesting, and he said, and and I remember, I I think I read both of them and in in the early one, it was more general and more, you know, it it was older. And the the second one I think was written maybe even in the nineties or something like that. Um, And he spoke about how he evolved as a Jew from the writing of the first book to the second book that he got more involved in learning Talmud and learning like more advanced subject matter in Judaism than what he had been engaged with. When he wrote the first book, he was more of just a traditional Jew. And he told the story about how he'd be, he was visiting, um, uh, he, he once had an encounter with, uh, with Richard Feynman. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but he had an encounter with Richard Feynman and he, he, was, he, was, he was reading the, he was learning like Dafyomi or something. He was learning like Gemara uh, and he, he posed the problem to Richard Feynman and Richard Feynman said, oh, the question, you know, the question would be, is it this way or this way? It was like a question, a question that e- Richard Feynman was able to understand that there's logic and there's reason and there's something because it was presented to him as an intellectual question. See, now I'm not saying that now Richard Feynman went and he learned Gemara, he didn't. But if you ask him, is the Talmud full of intellectual problems, maybe about subjects that he's not interested in, at least he would know that it's an intellectual discipline. I don't think that most, or exposed to that, there's also a famous story about Rabbi Soloveitchik that he he once walked in on his uh, on one of his professors in 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 you know in college and university, and they and the, it was a known like atheist uh, professor. and He was sitting and learning Gemara in his study in the middle of the night, you know, and he said, well, What are you doing? Why, why are you learning Gemara? You're a, you're, you're, a, you're a heretic, you don't believe in any of this stuff. He said, Your grandfather ruined my life because he taught me that like, he taught the intellectual beauty of learning was so great that even though I don't believe in it, I have to, I have to learn. Hmm. I, enjoy, I enjoy it too much. Now, that's an, these are, why did he have that idea? Because he re, he had an experience learning with a great mind that showed him that these areas are subjects of ser, you know, the, the serious intellectual Uh, challenge in these areas and something worth studying and worth learning and enjoyable to to gain an understanding. That doesn't mean again that it that it made him into a religious Jew but I think the first step in the process is uh, like what the Rambam says in uh, Rambam says in Shmona Prakim where he says that uh, if you compare Judaism to another religion from afar it looks the same you know they both look the same But when you look closely, you see that Judaism has profundity and depth to it that the other religions don't have. And he gives the analogy with when you're far away and you see a mannequin in a window, you think it's a real person. You know, it has clothes, the shape of a face, the shape of a body. You come close. Sometimes they make very realistic, you know, you go to these wax museums, they make very realistic looking uh, uh, mannequins. I mean, they're not mannequins, they're wax. It takes a lot of close inspection to realize the difference between a real person and that that wax, uh, uh, that, you know, that wax sculpture. So he says in the same way on the surface, it seems like religions are the same. They have prohibitions and they have uh, commandments and they have teachings and they have this, and they have that, He's like, but when you examine it, that's, you know, it's only on the surface, the similarity, but when you go into Judaism, you realize the depth of the, the thought and the, the beauty of the thought in Judaism. Now that's really what I think many Uh, uh, in our generation or even previous generations were missing and somebody like, uh, even like Einstein or even like Freud, they didn't get a Jewish education that exposed them to uh, Judaism on a high intellectual level as as something worthy of study, worthy of their intellectual energies. So they put their intellectual energies into other subjects. They had the desire for truth. They had the desire to learn. They had the desire for independent thought but they didn't see how that would have any connection to a religion which to them was just some kind of a quaint old fashioned way of life and culture that went from you know that's from days you know days past it's not for the it's future it's dated yeah, it's an outdated thing. Okay, you know, they would say I'm I'm grateful that I'm Jewish. You know, Einstein said many times uh, he was grateful to be Jewish because that was what allowed him to. That was what gave him his love of uh, knowledge for its own sake, his love of justice, his you know, his independence of thought, his concern for humanity. Like all these things came from his uh, you know his Jewish culture. He credited Judaism with that. But it's not like he's gonna. He, he would have thought that he could find depth and profundity in um, studying Jewish texts. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the big thing. I mean, if we can even, uh, you know, expose uh, young Jews or, you know, expose whoever's interested uh, in uh, in learning to the depth that Torah has to offer, and the texts of Judaism and the teachings of Judaism have to offer, then uh, then you're dealing, you know, that then you have the opportunity to engage, you know, to, to raise the uh, level of respect that people have for Jewish tradition and to engage them in it. And, and I think that's what's missing. I think it speaks for itself. I'm a big believer in the idea that, uh, that uh, as I said in another podcast, you know, that I, uh, that it, it, when, when you have, when you, you don't have to be afraid of uh, you know of being exposed to ideas, and and if you you know if you believe in what you have, you believe in what you have, then you know that if you if you present the ideas and you present the truth, then people who are open to the truth, they will see.
2: You actually kind of led into our next um, topic that we wanted to discuss, which was education of children. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think is missing in today's? Uh, education of children with Judaism do you think there are things that we could do better um is there things that we shouldn't be doing should be doing or just to basically how do we teach Judaism in a way where today's children will listen
1: (laughs) well topic yeah I mean uh I I'm not necessarily a you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of different theories and a lot of different ideas about how to educate and I'm not one to tell educators what to do, but um, I think it's important to, there, there's two things, there's two elements in, in Jewish education that uh, have, to be, have to be addressed. I don't know if this means that in every school they're doing it uh, well, they're doing it poorly. they're doing it they could be doing it better. they're, they're doing I'm not sure that's, that's really going to depend upon the particular educator and institution. But the two uh, areas that need to be a focus in my personal opinion when it comes to uh, uh, when it comes to Jewish education uh, are the uh, you know textual skills to create a, a generation that's able to access text independently rather than be dependent upon, Uh, second and third hand presentations of Jewish uh, text. That's a big problem. I think that a big problem is that uh, number one, we spend an inordinate amount of time translating text. It wastes a lot of time. But uh, besides that, it, it produces very dependent learners. It doesn't produce students or thinkers who can access the content on their own. And instead they depend upon people who in translating and commenting on, on whatever books are invariably you know, inserting their own interpretations or their own ideas, rather than allowing the reader to uh, form their own views. So I think that textual skills are a priority to, to, for independent learning. And then the second is to teach uh, kids how to uh, think clearly and how to think in a way that is uh, methodical and organized and, and clear, you know, to, just to, to think in a way that's not muddled. And a, and, a, and a lot of the, uh, a lot of what happens is that kids come with a, a hodgepodge of uh, understanding, uh, without a, a clear sense of what's related, how things relate to one another, uh, what is or isn't uh, connected to. Uh, let's say, for instance, you know, they they won't necessarily know what's in the text, what's in a midrash, what's in Rashi, and what's uh, what's what's in the text. What you know,
2: We're they, even qualifying those two. Huh? Or even qualifying those two, right? They so they actually becomes a text.
1: Yeah, or they just have a like a jumble of different ideas about, let's say Shabbat or let's say a Kashrut that they they don't cohere into any meaningful, uh, organized understanding of what Judaism is about. So they just get presented a whole bunch of different uh, pieces of information, a whole bunch of different ideas, and are not necessarily shown how these things. Fit together into a meaningful whole, and that just pr- that just promotes, I think, you know, fuzzy and disorganized thinking rather than uh, clear and uh, you know, a, a clear and perceptive thinking. And if we teach the students, you know, uh, for you know, one of the biggest challenges we have, I think, in Jewish education, as far as I remember, is when to introduce learning of Gemara in the in the curriculum. It's like always a hot topic because by definition, the kids who are being taught Gemara are not, are not prepared for it. Because the, um, the Gemara presupposes an enormous amount of background knowledge. It presupposes that you know the whole Tanakh, and it also presupposes that you know the entire Mishnah, and also presupposes that you know the whole context of the Mishnah. So it, it just assumes a lot. And, since it, and, and it throws you into a conversation about some detail of some, you know, particular mitzvah that you might not even know what mitzvah is of the 613 mitzvot that you're learning about. But it, it throws you into a discussion about a specific law or specific rule, specific details, and the endless... Um, back and forth about those details. So you are so focused on the the tree, so to speak, that you don't even know there's a forest there when you're learning. And this is the the method of Jewish education needs to be more systematic in the sense that kids are given the foundations of text, the big picture first, before we throw them into um, the ocean of, of uh, Talmud. It would be like putting a a kid into a. Uh, I, I often use this um, analogy to talk about Talmud that it's putting a child. Putting it's it's the difference between gra- a graduate seminar for uh, advanced postgraduate. You know, uh, let's say uh, you know, uh, in in a professional setting such as let's say uh, people of either a postdoctoral uh, level learning or at the very least a doctoral level learning. Um, where you have a graduate seminar, people already know the subject and they're doing research on some specific, highly specific uh, aspect of that subject. And the discussion is endless about the highly specific aspect of the subject, you know, but but the framework is presupposed that everyone who walks in the door has a PhD in physics. I have a PhD in biology, whatever, this, whatever it is. And therefore they don't need the foundations and the basic f- framework to be explained to them. So they can discuss those details endlessly and actually gain something. But for our kids, they learn a half of a page of Gemara over the whole year. They don't even know how it connects to anything else, what the bigger picture is, what the framework is um, and what Judaism is about. So the biggest lack is the lack of organization that what I see is lack of organization in, in, and, and, and lack of a systematic approach where we introduce them first to Tanakh and they actually know it. And then we introduce them to the mitzvot really, not even the mishnayot, even though that's what, you know, that's what would be would be thought because, the, because in Perkevod it says, oh, you're supposed to learn Mishnah after Tanakh. But that like the Rambam explains in his introduction to the Mishnah Torah, he says that the Mishnah presupposed a teacher who gave you the whole framework and the whole context. So learning Mishnah just becomes another disconnected activity. What it needs is really something more like knowing the Tanakh and knowing Judaism the way that the Rambam presents it, which is it as a comprehensive system. Then you have an idea of the comprehensive system. So if I talk to you about a particular detail, you know where that detail fits in in the system. You know what the relevance of it is. You're not losing your, your grasp on how things fit together because I'm talking about a detail, because you understand where that detail fits in the bigger picture of things. But if the kids don't even have a bigger picture, they don't have a framework in which to put all the information that you're giving them. So it's just like, it's like it talks about Rabbi Akiva in the Gemara, that Rabbi Akiva, the way that he learned when he was learning was he would go to different teachers and learn from them, and it would be, and then he would put, you know, all of the peppers in one basket and all of the bread in one basket. In other words, he would take. They use a metaphor. In other words, that he would organize it in these different baskets, meaning you can take all this information in, but you have to then met, have a meta process of organizing it and systematizing it so that everything fits in its proper place. This piece of information fits into my understanding of this. And this piece of information helps me to better appreciate this. If you don't have that, then you're just under a pile of details that have no clear order um, and organization. If you ask a child being taught, what is Judaism about? What's it about? What's the purpose? They're not gonna know. If you ask an average kid, what this Gemara that you're learning, Bhava Mitzvah, whatever, or whatever, what is the subject <laughs> of the chapter of uh, in, in, in one sentence, tell me what is the subject of it? What mitzvah, the 613 mitzvot is being explained in it, and why is it why should I care about it? I just have to pass the test. I don't, I, you know, yeah. the, the kid will, so the, the idea of having a sense of how it all fits together, the purpose of Judaism, the, the, the end game, so to speak, of Judaism, and how these the components fit together. First, then tell me about the details. Otherwise, you're overwhelming with details and they never see the forest for the trees. And probably most of these um, poorly educated, uh, uh, you know, great scientists or whatever, they received the Jewish education, maybe even less than that. I mean, I'm talking about a day school education. They probably didn't even receive that, most of them. They just received uh, an even more superficial introduction to the traditions of their ancestors, basically. As you know, even in a, at least in a day school education, there's somewhat it's taken seriously, but it's but not with a an eye to uh, to systematic exposition and and how everything um, coheres together. And without that, you can't have clear thinking. If you don't know, you can't. Have, that's why the Rambam was so insistent, by the way, in counting the mitzvot. You know, he spends like an entire book. How do you count the mitzvot? what are the 14 rules by which you count the mitzvot? Why, what, so who cares about counting the mitzvot? Why is it so important to know which are, and he's, and he's going on and saying, oh, it's terrible that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that previous uh, thinkers have messed this up and they counted the wrong thing. They counted this mitzvah, it's not even a mitzvah. They counted this, it's really just part of another mitzvah. This other thing is just a general statement. It's not a mitzvah at all. Why is it so important? Because muddled thinking starts there. Once you, don't have a, uh, once you don't have a sense of the uh, big picture, you know, so then it, you're already starting out handicapped in the process. Because you don't even know what mitzvah you're talking about. You could think that you're talking about a mitzvah, you're not, you're just talking about a detail of another mitzvah that's much bigger. It would be like if you, if you conduct an entire study on the trunk of an elephant, then you don't realize it's part of a larger organism. Right? Or if you conducted a study on something that you think are two things and they're really only one thing. So that's why he said you have to start out with the, that foundation and it's so important. So the purpose of Judaism is really articulated in Tanakh. The mitzvot of Judaism should integrate with that sense of purpose and should be organized and should be a respectable education in uh, you know, uh, along the same lines as any other subject matter that would be taught in a comprehensive way, not a hodgepodge. And then you can you can situate yourself in that framework.
0: Well, I both of us went to yeshiva our whole lives, and then we went to um, seminary in Israel mm-hmm. after the fact. And I felt, especially in my school, I went to university high school, um, that my rabbi senior year was he saw a lot of us weren't inspired by Judaism. And the answer to that is, you know, go to Israel, you'll find inspiration there. And what did I learn there that I didn't learn in yeshiva before? Jewish philosophy, you know, contemplation about like, like you just talked about, what is our purpose? What are the purpose of the mitzvah? I feel like these are fundamental issues that are completely ignored at a young age, and I feel like maybe even philosophy or understanding midrash instead of teaching them like fairy tales, we should be teaching them the way you know Aristotle would teach logic, you know, like which by the way used to be part of the curriculum in you know in schools in the world around the world, and now is no longer, um, but you know, just learning the, the, the depth of Jewish metaphor and allegory, um, not just as a literal, you know, story, but actually unpacking the deeper message. And I feel like that is just completely ignored. So we go from this fantastical explanation of, let's say, Agadah Midrash, and then we go from that to Mishnah and Gemara. So I just feel like there's just that gap like around fifth grade where you're just completely just thrown into a new
1: world and it's yeah, overwhelming. It's weird, that, uh, it's weird that it was thought that uh, it would be appropriate for kids to learn Midrashim that were conversations of like the Chachmei Yisrael about the Tanakh.
2: Hmm.
1: You know, it's like these statements about the, that are in the Midrash were conversations among like very advanced learners of the of the Khumash and obviously we're not just meant to be then transmitted to children as is like it just doesn't make sense that that would be thought as uh you know th- that you would transfer one to the other
2: it was meant for the intellectual elite,
1: right? It, this was a discussion of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon are talking about something in the in the Chumash, and you're going to teach that to a kid that they don't understand. They're not on the level of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon to know what it is that really they're trying to get at in their discussion, um, and what they're uh, what's encoded in that discussion. In the same way that I mentioned before, and I, I this I know I maybe beat this analogy to death, but I think this is the best analogy uh, to Gemara and also to Midrash. That if you walked into a uh, if you walked into some conference of scientists talking about some uh, obscure point in a finding in, a, uh, a, in, in some research study or some, uh, you know, some observation that was made of, uh, of the heavens and they're discussing it and discussing details of the way that the light was, you know, appeared or the way that you would say, what are they, what is this that they're talking about? Is it, what's the relevance doesn't make, why are they going on and on about this? And what is this about? You would have no idea. Now, to them, this is like the most the most fundamental this is this is gonna determine the difference between one theory and another theory of how the universe works. Yeah. You know, Einstein's theory was confirmed by the bending of light, you know, that they were able to observe. It's like by gravity, you know? So it's like it, it, to, to a person that says, so the light bend, it doesn't bend, who cares? Why are they why are they obsessing over whether the light's gonna bend or not? There's so many more important things to talk about. So, in the context of their discussion, that was the most fundamental thing, but for you who's just starting to learn the area, it's not something you're gonna be able to uh, to fathom. Like, w- first of all, what they mean, second of all, what the significance of it is. And, I, and, I, and that's, the, that's the difficulty with introducing, and you know, the, it, it, it's not just a uh, modern thing. I mean, even the Maharal was very critical of the method of education in his day. Because you know, there's stories about him going and critiquing that you know the kids memorize Rashi. They don't even know the words of the Chumash. They don't know the P'sukim. They don't know the simple meaning, and they're already getting ahead of themselves uh, to memorize uh, even more content that's really not intended for their level. And I and I, it's that's the issue. The issue. Well, was the,
0: I, but it became the, the go-to targum, replacing onkulos, which I feel like who, Rashi. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I feel like that's a little, Rashi a little bit more advanced it's in a sense where you're dealing with, obviously somebody say he's, right. he referred to as Pshutoshal Mikra. This is like the simple understanding, but clearly it's not. And right. the method of, you know, Unculus, which was to break things down to a very, you know, rational yeah. level. And and I feel like that's really missing. Even yeah.
1: our basic understanding of Torah. What caused people to stop learning Unculus was the language, I think. Yeah. That it's that it's an Aramaic and it's very difficult. I mean, you have to
0: learn a new script to read Rashi. Also, that's that's it's not
1: not that hard. But you know, compared to knowing Aramaic, it's not not comparable. But the um, the thing is with Rashi, it's the you there's a simple there's a simple uh, question you can ask, which is who was the intended audience of Rashi? Who was he writing for? Was he writing for a, a second grader? No, of course not. He wasn't writing for them. So yeah, there are a lot of comments in Rashi that are very helpful for Shitosh al-Mikran. He knew the difference between Pshutosh al-Mikran and At. Of course. You know, he, so he, uh, you know, many of his comments are helpful and uh, are related to the Pshat and are, and are good. So a good teacher should be able to select uh, the comments of Rashi that are helpful for understanding the text. There's no question that those comments are there that, and a lot of them are helpful. The question is when study of Rashi becomes really a study of the Midrashim that Rashi quotes because he thinks that they are a, an avenue to a deeper understanding of the text for someone who is more advanced. And, um, and that is where uh, introducing that to kids can be a problem because it's, uh, it sends them off the rails of, of understanding what the actual Chumash says. And it's, it, you know, for Rashi, that was great. And for the people for whom Rashi intended his comments, that was also great. But it's, uh, it's something that you have to have, again, a context and a background to appreciate. And um, it will become a liability when it is a distraction from more fundamental work that the person should be doing in their understanding. Um, for sure, that kids that get their heads cluttered with magical types of midrashim taken literally is a different problem. That they become accustomed to thinking in a way that is not uh, is not clear, and to uh, you know to thinking in a sort of associative and uh, uh, magical way of thinking that is not healthy for them, and that Rashi wouldn't have wanted to uh, w- wanted them to have either. It's not like Rashi wanted people to walk around in a fairy tale land. He was taking, he was very, he was very uh, selective in, in the Midrashim that he, that he cites.
0: I feel like it's very hard to shake that off as you're growing up because you're, you're taught within that prism. And then as you grow, you're never told, you're never told that, oh, this was meant to be taken, you know, as an allegory and not to be taken seriously. So... You know how do, how does someone who is an adult now totally go back and, and reverse everything? It's it's a problem because magical thinking. I and this is what I feel is one of the problems plaguing you know Judaism in a sense where the intelligent Jews are turned off. Like I have friends who I convince them after years just go to a shiur and they end up going to the shiur of of a rabbi who's just speaking nonsense and speaking about magic as if it's real and he's just like, are, are you serious? So. For me, that, that, that's just like, it's a problem. I feel like a lot of people are thinking in, in those terms. And, you know, I think it has to be fixed in, in, in yeshiva, but at a very young age.
1: Right. I mean, I don't know a simple answer to, uh, how, to how to uproot it from, from your own mind. I, I remember reading a story about one rosh yeshiva that said, that he could never learn certain prakim of Talmud, certain chapters of Talmud he could never learn properly because he was taught them as a kid and he could never get the simplistic understanding fully out of his mind, like uh, the, the childlike understanding out of his mind. Um, that was him. I don't think it's impossible to do it. It definitely poses a challenge. The, the only uh, The only approach is to um, study the midrashim as an adult with an eye to trying to appreciate what they're really about. If you have like, mm-hmm. that's where a certain measure of emunat chachamim comes in, that if you trust that really the chachamim are chachamim, like the Rambam says, you know, don't believe that they don't know that they're saying nonsense, you believe that they're really saying chokhmah. then you, uh, you know, you have to be a fanatic, actually. You have, you have to fanatically believe that in emunat chachamim, that they actually had chokhmah. And give them credit for it. And then, when you study the words of the rabbis in depth, and you have a method for understanding midrashim, you are always pleasantly surprised. I'm not saying that you're going to understand every midrash in, you know, in a short period of time. And you'll definitely have some along the way. What we call certain things that don't immediately become uh, illuminated to you. But you will, um, like a scientist who at first doesn't believe in a certain theory, but keeps seeing confirmations that you know that you, that Nature has an order and nature is, uh, is rational and logical, and it keeps, um, it keeps proving itself. So after a while you become convinced from a few examples, you become convinced of the, uh, uh, of the totality. And that's true also with Midrashim, that once you've seen uh, a number of Midrashim that at first seem uh, bizarre and uh, nonsensical, but eventually you can unpack and reveal as having really shed light on text and having uh, a profound meaning. So you become convinced that the methodology of trusting in the words of the Chachamim and giving them the benefit of the doubt works because there there is a lot of depth there. The key is to teach kids, oh, this story that you heard, you know, when we all have this, I mean, my kids will come with uh, things that they heard and I try to emphasize to them the fundamentals like what I'm telling you. Uh, I'm just ta- speaking really from myself that, you know, I emphasize because it's something that what we call nefesh, like every child can get the idea that the purpose of Judaism is to be to sanctify Hashem's name in the world and to make known that there's one God in the world and that, you know, through the way that we live our lives and to understand him as best as we can. And, uh, and that's what Avraham Avinu pioneered. And if that alone trickles down to, their, to your kids, they have a framework for understanding what the real purpose of Judaism is. And they will ask, well, how does this mitzvah relate to that purpose? And how does this mitzvah relate to that? And if they hear a midrash, you say, well, the purpose of this midrash is to highlight this point or highlight that point. And then you quickly move on from the midrash. I don't let them get to, in, you know, get to, uh, Uh, attached to the material case of the Midrash. I'm more interested in showing them the idea of the Midrash so that they know that when they hear a Midrash they should assume that it contains a deep idea, but that they shouldn't get too caught up in the um, trappings of the Midrash, the external trappings of the Midrash, but they should realize that the purpose of that was to make it memorable and to attract their curiosity so that they would see an idea that can help them understand judaism and then move on from it but not make the midrash the focus of the education because it's supposed to when they ask a question you always have to address it because you don't want them to um you don't want them to misunderstand
2: so basically us parents have to step up our game
1: yeah.
2: and be totally. able to present midrashim to our children in a, in a more elevated way
1: your kids You know, your kids will benefit from the level of learning that you have, that's for sure. I mean, that's always true. And that's true in every area, um, in every area of life, to the extent that you are uh, more knowledgeable, your kids will be able to benefit from having a parent that can answer their questions or at least can engage them in a discussion that is uh, helpful to them. So when you can show them, when you've learned certain Midrashim well, you can say, well, look at this Midrash or look at that. And here's an example of how you, Unlock a midrash what do you think this could mean um, just sort of give them as the default the the uh, the assumption that this is this midrash is a riddle it's not really a uh, it's not really a literal exposition that's giving credit to the chachamim and it's like the rambam tries to show you that the people who are who take the words of the chachamim literally and therefore believe that you know bilam was floating on a magic carpet and all this kind of things like then they they actually are making the chachamim seem like uh, like fools, God forbid, and uh, instead of realizing that these chachamim had really profound things to tell us, anybody can write, uh, you know, fantastical stories. You know, I, I don't need a great chacham like Rabbi Akiva to write some mythical story. I can read the Arabian Nights if I want mythical stories about floating carpets, you know. It's, there, there's a lot better um, uh, literature out there for fictional uh, you know, or, or mythical, uh, mythical details, um, that One
0: are adult, very- uh, a <laughs> lot of adults, learned adults who went through yeshiva and everything, you know, still believe that rabbis in the Talmud were to fly and do all these things. So, uh, not, I've met people like that. I'm sure you've met people like that. It's it's common. Yeah, and,
2: uh, they do teach in yeshiva that like every single one of the tanaim were able to do triatemetim. Oh, that's in the Gemara. That's not. Oh, gemara. I'm sorry. Okay, I didn't know. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah um, okay. So so. Um, stop yeah. Just how do you understand that? Didn't right? make up. How do you understand the Gemara? Just while we're at it.
1: It's look. It, it's it's obviously if that were true, then nobody would ever die. So you know they're trying to make. <laughs> <on the> <laughs> They're trying to make a point about the, the great, you know, the great level of the chachamim, that they had the great zachut, uh, but it's an exaggeration. You know, it's, 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 we call hyperbole. Right. You know, the rabbi spoke shon havai. And what's the example of the Torah? The Torah speaks in lashon havai. How do we know that? Because it says our, that the cities were the shamai. Right. The wall went
2: out on eagle's wings. Right. Right. It's 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 a form of praise. Exaggeration.
1: exaggeration. It's saying they were so great that they had the zechut that God would answer their prayers. Um. You know. And what does that really mean about what kind of people they were? That they were really able to. In other words, that that leads you to a deeper understanding because you say, "Wow!" Because the the, because the initial reaction would be like, "Wow, they have superpowers; they can raise the dead," but. The deeper meaning of that is that they raise the real dead, which is that they teach knowledge to people who are spiritually dead. Right. And 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 that's you reintegrate that's the, the soul. Right. That's the real Like the Rambam says in the Bible, that we you know that the uh, that real life is a life of the soul. The bodily life is not real life. So whenever it talks about life, that's why we say that tzaddikim. Even when they're dead, they're called uh, alive, and the, and the wicked, even when they're alive, they're called dead. Meaning, they don't have a real life. They don't have a true life. They have a they have a biological existence. They don't have a human life. the, uh, the, the you know the, the so real triatametim is the person who is able to take a, a spiritually dead person and, and and bring them to life. That's that's true tchiata metim that they were able to do. So you know, the physical tchiata metim is not significant from the uh, from the perspective of chachamim because physical life is only an instrument anyway. Just something higher, you know.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, actually, um, speaking of educating the children, um, you're, you know, you inspire us. Uh, we, we, I, I witnessed your daughter reading um, the Megillah, and I was very impressed. I'd never seen that before, um, and I was wondering, you know, first of all, I want to hear your thoughts on women in Judaism, mm-hmm. but also, you know, in the biblical law, it seems like women have like less um, kind of uh, protection than slaves, right? They seem like they're they seem like there are more rules catered to slaves. But on the other hand, um, there's leaders like Devorah, who you know, in the ancient world, we we rarely see anything like that, where women got to such high you know positions of power. Um, so, do you feel like the Torah is progressive um, when it comes to women's issues, or do you feel like you know? It was, but now it's kind of changed throughout the ages. Um, so I just want to get your take on that.
1: Uh, it, Judaism is not a religion where political power is valued in for its own sake. So we don't speak much about rights. We speak about mitzvot and obligations and responsibilities more than about rights and entitlements in Judaism. The question is, what is the true good for a person to seek, and is it related to their political standing in a in a society? The real good for a person to seek is knowledge of Hashem and avod Hashem, and uh, nurturing of their soul. It has nothing to do with what political position they have, what rights they have in uh, you know in a society. That, in other words, all the things that are uh, that disadvantage women or traditionally did are in the material and the political realm. But in terms of the spiritual realm in the eyes of God, both men and women are created in the image of God and have the same opportunity to serve and relate to God. Uh, and so in the sense of what really counts and what's truly important, men and women are 100% equal uh, metaphysically. And you see even the Rambam says in, uh, in the uh, Mishneh Torah, he, he says that, you know, he says that the, he speaks about Ahavat Hashem as a mitzvah that applies to everyone, men and women. And how do you accomplish Ahavat Hashem from knowledge of God? So clearly both men and women have to attain to a knowledge of God that can bring them to love of God. And he says that the mitzvot are presented in a way that everybody can know them, men, women, children, old, the, every level is able to understand the mitzvot and to comprehend them and to see the wisdom of God from the mitzvot and that's the, uh, that's the goal. So and that, that's really what's important. Now, what happens is that in every framework of human beings and politics, power becomes an issue and who's in charge. And, 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 and so feminism is a response to the, uh, to the uh, disenfranchisement of women from positions of power uh, and I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I, I, you know, nobody should be abusing power and nobody should be mistreating or denying, uh, denying opportunity to anybody else, it's, uh, that, that's for sure. In the, when the Torah was given it was given in a, in a very strictly patriarchal society. And it's present, it presents a strictly patriarchal society in which men are the ones doing most of the talking and most of the action revolves around men because that's the reality of, uh, of the times in which they live. It's not like God was going to transform all of a sudden uh, all of society and all of humanity and all of culture through a miracle into some kind of a modern day uh, egalitarian setting. It just doesn't make any sense. Why, it's presenting to us the way things work. So whenever I teach, whenever women ask me this or we have a discussion about it, I'm always honest with them. And I say, look, you have to be honest. The Tanakh is descriptive, not prescriptive when it comes to men and women's roles. It's showing you that men and women Occupied very distinct uh, positions in the society of the ancient world, and that somebody like Dvora or somebody like Miriam, or somebody like uh, uh, somebody like um, Esther Malka, are unique. Standout characters, or Ruthemavia, you know, people who are unique, standout characters, who uh, you know, or Bruria in the Talmudic times. You know, we have we have examples from the Talmudic times as well, and throughout history, if you if you look at the history of Jewish learning, there's an excellent book on it uh, that was written actually in the '90s, so it's probably it needs some updating. <laughs> but there's an excellent book on the history of women's learning and you know, over over the course of centuries. I mean, there were always women like that, but they were unique and they were, they were, uh, you know, they, they were apart from their generation, they weren't, it wasn't the typical, and that has to do with the reality of the societies in which they lived. It has nothing to do with God said that, you know, the women have to have a certain role that they have to be that they can or they can't uh, perform certain uh, social functions. I mean, uh, or, or have, an, uh, have a profession or not have a profession or um, get an education or not get an education. These things have nothing to do. Uh, Hashem never opined about that. Um, the Torah doesn't speak about that. It only speaks about, it only describes the um, societal and cultural setting uh, at the time it was given. And in that setting, obviously men were the ones who were playing the, the decisive roles in most communal matters. Now, in, in so far as, uh, uh, you know, today is concerned, it would be a mistake, in my opinion, to uh, advocate for uh, the kind of egalitarianism that turns performance of mitzvot into a type of a power that, uh, and a type of a privilege, because the danger is that it, that it basically, basically you're politicizing the arena of religion. And what the struggle with, you know, women of the wall, whoever, you know, whoever the outspoken, advocates for egalitarianism are, I don't know. But um, the fact that we have, a, a, a you know, that it becomes a matter of power is distracting from the whole purpose of tefillah and the whole purpose of religious action, which is for the attention to be on Hashem and not on who's doing and who's in charge and who's running things and so on. And unfortunately, we're still at a stage in our development as a community where that is of great concern to people. So you know the way that I tried to raise my kids, I tried. I don't know if I was successful. I, only time will tell. I tried to raise my kids with the idea that in, in every in every way that counts, in every way that really makes any difference, there's no difference between men and women. That they can do all the same mitzvot if they so choose, and they can uh, and they can learn just as much as they choose. And they can be as close to Hashem as they choose. And if you think that you're closer to Hashem than Dvorah or Khulda or one of the in a Niviot or Miriam, then, you know, Miriam was greater than every prophet who came after that time, every single one, man or woman. Their gender had nothing to do with it. In the area of the spirit, the, the, the gender should have nothing to do with it. That's a biological thing. Biological, maybe social, depends on the society. Yeah. So, you know, since there was an opportunity, my daughter was interested in learning to read the Megillah. There's nothing in halakha that prohibits a woman from meeting, reading Megillah, at least not according to them. You know, there is there, there might be one or two opinions that are that are against it, but certainly not in the Sephardic uh, tradition. I mean, uh, the Rambam, Shulchan Aruch, they all say that men and women are totally uh, on even footing with regard to Megillah. And mastering some course of study for her bat mitzvah was, you know, an appealing prospect so reading the Megillah made sense
2: but it wasn't it was very inspiring
1: it it wasn't a matter of like trying to make any kind of a statement if she had said she didn't want to then she wouldn't want to i just said well if you'd like to do this here's an option for you to consider if you'd like to learn to read the miguel i'll teach you so and she decided to do that and she still does it every year she still does it a few times you know for different people who need to hear uh, and, you know, she's doing it as a mitzvah. She's not the type of person, it worked well for her because she's not the type of person who is looking to stand out or uh, seek attention or seek power, try to be an influencer, try to be, you know, anything like that. I don't believe in that for men or women. Uh, you know, it's like, unfortunately, a lot of times you will hear people say things like, well, women who want to learn it's only because they're trying to show and it's only because they're trying to make a statement and it's only because they want to you know they want power or they want a title it's only because of this they question their motives the motive always becomes a question it's an ulterior motive it's not really genuine it's a feminism it's a you know they they're they're trying to pursue a feminist um, Feminist goals through Judaism and they're looking for Kavod, they're looking for honor, they're looking for to be the center of attention. But nobody asked that question of the thousands of people enrolled in Yeshiva University smicha program. <laughs> <laughs> is, is every single one of those men a, t- a tzaddik that does everything Lishma? <laughs> if so, then I'd be that's amazing.
2: No, it's, a very fair point. it's a very fair point.
1: Well, are you telling me there's nobody who's learning Shaloli Shema in the entire Yeshiva University Smicha program? Who doesn't want the title or the credential of rabbi, either for a professional reason or for kavod reason? I'm not saying they're all like that. There are some probably just learning because they want to learn. But I'm saying motives, <coughs> and I'm sure among the women, there are some that have motives that are less noble, but why should I assume that there are not some women who have wonderfully noble motives that they want to understand tawana, understand Chokhmah understand the wisdom of Hashem like everybody else. And what's the problem? In other words, once you start analyzing everybody's, uh, you're gonna have to close pretty much every yeshiva in the world, if you're gonna question people's motives and only allow people in who are lishmat. That's a, That was a problem of uh, Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel. Kol Talmid she'en But any student who is not as good on the inside as he is on the outside, he can't come into the Beit Midrash. That was what he said. Mm -hmm. So like, that's a very high standard. And of course, as soon as he was deposed, the first thing they did was open the doors of the Beit Midrash to anybody who wanted to learn. And all of a sudden they resolved in one day, hundreds of questions that have been uh, unresolved for many years because of the uh, resistance to allowing people with less noble motives into the Beit Midrash. So it's just not a. It doesn't make any sense. nobody says we say Person learns shelo They see the beauty of learning. They they continue. There's no uh, no reason to stop. There's no reason to start questioning motives and you know questioning intentions. Just only about women because uh, because they're newcomers to the scene and you know and if you want to be brutally honest, uh, people are protecting their own power.
2: Well said, Rabbi.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. To, to, to try to uh, paper over it. If it were not for the fact, in other words, if men were on the receiving end of this, it wouldn't stand. If somebody said, from now on, only men that are toho can come in the Beit Midrash, and if you don't show that your intention is that you learn uh, only for the right reasons, and you don't demonstrate that you have no other agenda, you can't come in, they would be in uh, an uproar. That wouldn't stand. It wouldn't stand. Just, like I,
2: yeah,
1: just like I said, if Aguna agunah crisis was the other way around, and the men were the one chained in the relationship, it would have been solved 100 years ago. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the agunah <laughs> yeah, crisis. Wanted to like you.
1: Anything my- with men and women, the, the people who are not in power, are always, um, you know, the ones who are disadvantaged, people say, oh, why are you making such a big deal out of it? Why are you, you know, change happens slowly. You have to be patient. You have to do this. And that was exactly what, you know, people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were being told, you know, during the civil rights movement. Oh, don't worry, you'll come, you know, why are you pushing accept what they give you? And there were some black leaders who thought that was great. At least they're letting us have uh, schools, and they're letting us—you know—they're not uh, putting us in chains. Let's be, let's be thankful, hmm. you know. The, the, and that was—and—and and then there were some leaders who said that's not acceptable.
0: I know. I know you're very pressed for time, and uh, we're going to cut it short very soon. But um, I wanted to ask you about the Aguna crisis. Now that you brought it up, yeah, is there a solution
1: okay. to it? <laughs> Look, there are pro- a lot of proposed solutions. Um, the question is that, uh, and there are some rabbis who are working on the problem and they're trying to solve it. And the, the issue is that the, the, you have to look at it from both, uh, sides. The, um, the, there is a simple, there's, there are simplistic views on both sides. There's a simplistic view on the side of the, of the conservative, meaning the religiously conservative who will say, well, there's no solution to it. This is the halacha that we've been, you know, we have to do it and only in a way that satisfies every opinion. And if we can't deliver the get in a way that satisfies every opinion, then we can't do it. And therefore, we're just going to say that there's nothing we can do. Right. And then there's the other side that says, oh, the rabbis are just being difficult. They should just be able to know the marriage. They should just be able to ignore the halacha and uproot it. And if they really wanted to, they'd be able to. And that's the thats the other side. In other words, there's the, there's the, the side of the, the far left, you could say, in the dispute, which is like the you know where there's a where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way. That was the that was the famous uh, <laughs> uh, a, a phrase, meaning that the rabbis are just because they don't care, they're just not doing anything. On the other side are the ones who really say, like, well, we want to fulfill every opinion when it comes to get. We don't want to put people in a situation where their get is not recognized by everyone, and so therefore we're not going to issue the get. And they might be sincere in that, but they certainly don't feel much of an impetus to. Uh, change it. And, you know, so some of the things that have been suggested are, you know, they have this now, um, this halachic prenup, which is essentially what it does. I don't know if you're familiar with it or maybe your listeners are not. Essentially what it does is it's signed at the time of the marriage. And it says, if we have a civil divorce and I, and I refuse to give a religious divorce by a certain amount of time, I'll start getting fined a large amount of money. It's like, it's a lot of money it's a it's it's in order to pressure
2: them it's a deterrent
1: it's a deterrent meaning it's or 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 motivator, a motivator. um yeah meaning to to get the person to uh to give the get because it's
2: he's deterring him from doing that it's from, right. from yeah. a
1: significant financial penalty is incurred and it's been held up in courts so it's something that actually uh has, seems to work now there are some rabbis who say no that's what's called get me uset. there's an idea of get me uset, which means that you're not supposed to have a forced get. The get has to be granted willingly from the husband to the wife. That's one thing we can't change, that's the halacha. So the people who say where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way, don't understand that much about the halachic way. That's a problem. There there is a halacha that just as a woman cannot be betrothed without consent, she cannot be married without her consent, no matter what. So too, a man cannot, before, you know, be made to divorce without his consent. That's the way that it works. In other words, the halachic system is a transactional system that at the time of the marriage, the woman could refuse. If she accepts, she's giving the man the right to live with her until such time as he returns that right to her, that, that independence to her. That's the, uh, that's the way the mechanism works. It's a legal mechanism, just like any other acquisition of rights that you can't just force the person to give it up. Our government keeps trying to do that, but you can't do that so simply. Right? So therefore what happens is that the husband has to grant the divorce. The, the issue of get me say is that a person Will claim that it wasn't really done willingly. He did it under duress. He did it because he was forced. So it's not a genuine expression of his will, and therefore it's not valid. That's a concern. So they say, oh, even if he's being fined money, now there are many chuvot that have been written on this over the generations. Like there's a lot of halachic material on what's considered say, get- Can you detain a person and refuse to allow them to leave the country? Can you detain their relative and use it as pressure? What can you and can't you do and isn't considered to be uh, forced to get? Okay. That was a discussion in the literature. If you look it up, you can find all of these chuvot over hundreds of years. And based upon this, it was the determination of many rabbis that this, this wasn't considered a forced get, even though there are some who are still skeptical about it. They don't think that the finding of money is a forced get because the guy can pay if he wants to, right? Now, the Rambam, of course, had a different view. He didn't believe in the idea of get me at all because the Rambam has a very you know, very well-known view that a woman should never, is not allowed to, we cannot allow a woman to live with a man that she doesn't want to be married to. Meaning even if she initiates the divorce proceedings and she demands a divorce and says, I won't live with this person because what's called ma'is alai, he's disgusting to me. I don't I, I, I can't live with him, okay? So the Rambam says in his famous language, a woman is not shvuyat cherev, right? She's not a captive of the sword, that she should you know that we force her to live with someone she doesn't want to live with. So therefore what does the Rambam say? He says okay but we have the problem that the man has to give the divorce willingly. So what's the re- what's the resolution? No problem. We beat him until he's willing to do it. <laughs> yeah. Right? So he says, "Ah, you'll ask me if I beat him. He's not really doing it willingly. He's not really doing it truthfully because he's only doing it to stop the beating." He says, "No, no, no, no. Really he wants to do the right thing." Because every person, deep down, they want to do the right thing. It's just that he has an evil inclination, Yetzirah, that is forcing him to do the wrong thing. So no problem, we negotiate directly with the Yetzirah by beating him. And then the (laughs) (laughs) the Yetzirah says, I want to do it, I want to do it. And he gives the get. Now, that's according to the Rambam. There was no greater halakhic authority there's been no greater authority since the Rambam in our history. I don't think there ever was. Maybe there never will be. Maybe, in the, maybe, maybe the Mashiach will be better, OK? And yet, his opinion was not accepted because of Ashkenazim. I'm not trying to make this a racial thing, but <laughs> because of Ashkenazi rabbis that said, well, what about get said? This is a force to get. We can't do that. He has to agree. So they resisted. And because of the concern that a woman would be divorced and her divorce would not be universally recognized, and some people will still consider her a married woman, and then her children, if she got remarried to somebody else, would be considered possibly uh, mamzerim, illegitimate children. God forbid. So therefore, they didn't want to endorse the Rambam's view. And that—that's where this whole idea of let's make sure—and this is this is where you can sense this is where maybe the rabbinic will halachic way comes into comes into play because. There are many, many halachic areas of great severity where the rabbis have gone ahead and said, you know what? We're just going to follow the lenient opinion. Many, okay? There are, there are people carrying an eruv. According to the Rambam, everyone is getting karet every Shabbat. Yep. They're carrying on purpose, and he would consider Rashut HaRabim a wide street, carrying objects, private domain, public domain. And yet they say, no, 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 because of the Tosfo, it says this and the so They combine a few different opinions together to generate that they're allowed to do it. There are many people, and that's probably, it's very widespread. There are many other examples, but that's the, maybe the most egregious. Of course, there's Yashan and Hadash. Yeah, Kemach Yashan is more popular in, in Great Neck, uh, it's become, but, uh, but you it know, wasn't always the case. And uh, that's another thing where it's a clear biblical prohibition. Pretty much every single authority Held that kemach yasham was required from the Torah that you have to have a certain type of flour. You can't get the flour from the new crop until Pesach is passed. And yet the Ashkenazi rabbis, they came up with it, and it wasn't even old Ashkenazi rabbis. I'm talking about in like the 17th century, came up with a uh, solution solution to the problem that they had a lot of flour shortages and things like that and allowed it. And when they came to America, the OU decided to continue with that minhag of Europe, even though now is readily available, right? Why is it that they're willing to do that? Why is it that they're willing to make so many different compromises in Kashrut, in, uh, you know, in, uh, in Shilchot Shabbat, many, many, many subjects where leniencies have been introduced even on biblical prohibition. So don't tell me it's because it's a biblical prohibition. Right? And yet, we say no, it has to be something that's good according to all opinions. Why can't we just... I, I once had lunch with Rabbi Yoel Bin Nun. He's a little controversial, but... Um, lunch with yeah, him? I had lunch with oh. him. Yeah. When I was living in Riverdale, I was invited for Shabbat to somebody's house because I said, we need Hebrew speakers. He only speaks Hebrew. So they need Hebrew speakers for lunch. So I got a, I got a free lunch. It was a good deal. And he it was so interesting sitting with him. This was... I was still living in Riverdale, so it's got to be Maybe sixteen years ago, every topic that you discuss with him, he has like a, a novel approach. He doesn't have a conventional approach to anything in Judaism. He's like, so you know, take it or leave whatever you think about his views. It's not even—he's an original thinker, and 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 he acts on his beliefs. Like he cuts his shirts to be arba uh, kanfot, so he can put tzitzit on his actual clothes. Like he's he does his own, he doesn't stop. You know, he's really, he's independent, but he lives by his beliefs. You know, I respect him. Yeah. And he he said, I remember at that meal, he said, when it comes to the agunot, it must have come, like every topic came up. You know, when you're with somebody like that, you want to get their view on so many things. And he said, I don't understand. In every other area, we are sometimes lenient. Even on a, on Isur Torah, we, we find len- we rely on lenient opinion all the time we do it. Why do we? Every time the Ashkenazim say Brachan Halal, they're going Safik Deoraita of uh, saying Brachalev They didn't have a problem with that. You, I mean, you could find so many things that are Safik Deoraita that they're lenient about. They don't cover every, uh, every, every possible case of uh, when it's a biblical prohibition, they're strict. It's not true. It's like, so why here all of a sudden we decide we have to fulfill every opinion? Why can't we just follow the Rambam's opinion? It works very well. There's that rabbi in New Jersey who was doing that. You know, he was he was picking people up in a van and taking them to a warehouse and like using a cattle prod on them. (laughs) The the only problem with that, I like that guy a lot, except for one, the only one problem, he was taking a lot of money for it. He was taking like $100,000 a case. If he had done it, L'shem Shemayim, I wouldn't have said a thing. It's only because he was doing he needed it. all that money to pay
0: for his legal fees
1: probably. <laughs> yeah he's in jail now but he, he, I guess to hire the thugs to actually do because he hired like these big guys to go and wow. uh, and, and kidnap the guy it was it was it was crazy but wow. it was a whole sting operation they caught him and, and and they you know there was a sting operation. look I, my sympathies were with his cause, if not for the money aspect like I, I, because I don't think that it's right that we are, we are comfortable and complete to be complacent about an issue that really terrorizes a lot of people.
2: Yeah, and
1: um, and and it's an area where there is a halachic solution. The Rambam gave the halachic solution. The Rambam is greater than anybody today. No rabbi today will claim to be the toenail of the Rambam. Sure. You know. So so or- who are they to say that his position that he would if he were here today he would be saying that's what we should be doing? Who's to say that he's wrong about that? And you by the way, we, we
0: don't have the time to get into, you know, the history of halacha between us. Yeah, maybe but, another But that's for another time. And, and I think it's a very interesting topic. It's probably one of your, my favorite cheer of yours. Um, I urge all of you listeners to Hopefully find it on YouTube. We'll do with our, yeah, we'll definitely uh, get into that. But we're going to try this thing right now because we're going to go. But before we go, we want to try like a speed round where we just throw things at you, um, you know, two different things. And you have to choose which one you like more. Or you could plead the fifth. Okay. And, and you have a few seconds to tell us, like, which one, you know, why, why you chose that. So, they're going to be random, not just related to Judaism. So, um, Malcolm X or MLK?
1: Oh, that's so tough. I, I like Malcolm X, actually, because I, I, I feel like he was a, uh, a really independent and uh, 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 independent thinker, even more so than MLK. Okay.
2: Quran or the New Testament?
1: Um, the Quran is more, it, it's very hard. I have to plead the fifth because the Quran is more beautiful poetry, but the the New Testament has better stories. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Persian food or Ashkenazi food? Oh, Persian food. That's not even right. okay. Okay, I haven't eaten Ashkenazi food in the longest time. I don't even <laughs> remember what it tastes like
2: football or baseball.
1: Baseball.
0: All right, more of or the Zohar
1: <laughs> for what purpose? Yeah, more Bukhim, I guess okay. that's be it. I mean the Zohar is something that I that I like too, but not as much as the Moran I didn't
0: ask you Rabbi Shim Bar or uh, Moshe de Leon, so don't worry about that. Uh, uh, okay, so <laughs> hot dog or pizza? Pizza. All right. So I think you have any
2: more? Shai Rachim or 130.
0: Oh, I have to plead the fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Well, thank you, Rabbi. I love the We really enjoyed this. We appreciate it. It was fantastic. Thank Thank you. you Thanks for having
2: me. Thank you so much.